And we're, we're going to talk about a very important issue this morning, and that's holiness. Holiness. And specifically this week, holiness in the church. Next week, we're going to look at holiness in our individual lives. Holiness. And I know some of you are already kind of going there. You might say, holiness. Oh, uh, holy rollers. John's going to talk about being a holy roller this morning. John's going to talk about, you know, just having this, you know, self-righteous thing going on, condemning people, gossiping, you know, putting people down. Is that what holiness is? No. We got the whole wrong conception of holiness. Holiness, Greek word hagios, means to be set apart for God's purposes. Holiness is that we're different than the rest of the world. We're not being conformed to this world. We're being transformed by the renewing of our mind. We're different. We're set apart. That's simply what the word means, holy. It means set apart for the purposes of God. And you know what? One of the problems we have in the church in the United States, especially today, is the church and Christians are trying to be like the world rather than different than the world and transforming the world. They're, they're conforming to the world. And it's a problem. It makes for a dead church. A live church is a church that's different than the, the rest of the world and is holy. The Bible says we're supposed to be a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, called out of darkness into his marvelous light so we might proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I, I know about dead churches. I grew up in one. I grew up in a church that was dead as a doornail, and I hated going there because I'd walk into the sanctuary and I knew right away, nothing, no life chance going on here. One of the reasons why I was a dead church is because they didn't believe in this right here, the Word of God. They didn't believe in the infallibility and inerrancy and the truth of Scripture and the authority of Scripture. And I tell you, you want a dead church? Just don't believe in this. But another reason why I was a dead church is because there, no, there was no difference in the lives of the people there. The Word wasn't being preached. The Gospel wasn't being preached. And people would just come as a social gathering every week. And there was immorality and other things going on in that church. And I, I saw it firsthand because my parents were involved in it and our family's involved in it. And I saw it was an amazing thing too because, <laughs> I mean, they would actually, I mean, there was, there was almost a liberality in the church where they, they no big deal, different, different issues. I remember there, there was actually in the foyer of the church, there was ashtrays, and everybody light up right after church, right in the church foyer. Now, God bless you if you smoke. I'm not condemning you. I'm just saying, doing that in the church foyer, really? And I remember going to parties with my uh, parents, and they'd have dinner parties and stuff like that with the people in their church, and, and they, they, we would, as kids, be in another room. And my, Parents and all the people from the church we were a part of, they, they, they'd all get pickled on Saturday night before and go worship on Sunday morning. There's no difference. It was dead as a doornail, that church, because it wasn't a holy church. But then I remember, as a high school student, there was a revival in our high school. Oak Park River Forest High School in Chicago, there was 4,500 students, and about 100 of those students got on fire for Christ. And I remember meeting them, because that was one of their projects, they started witnessing to me, all these Christians in this high school, and they were different. They were different. They even talked differently than us out in the world. They didn't use the four-letter words that we used. They were different in that they didn't go to the parties we went to on the weekend. They went to church on the weekend. They, on, two, on Monday night, they went to Bible study. Tuesday night, they went to Young Life Club, and they were different. I called them straight arrows because they were their life had been changed by Jesus Christ. And the more I got to know them, the more that I saw the reality of the holiness and the Christ-likeness in their life, the more I wanted in because I saw, I saw reality there. 
These guys' lives have been changed by Jesus Christ. And the more I got to know them, the more I wanted what they had. They were the salt of the earth to me. They were the light of the world. I wanted what they had because they've been changed. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, what? The new is come. We're, we're, as Christians, we're supposed to be people in the process of beholding his face and being changed from glory to glory, listen, into his image. So this morning, we're going to look at holiness in the church. And we're going to see Paul, remember Corinthians, the letter we're in, is a corrective letter. And we're going to see Paul bring correction, bring correction to the church in Corinth because they weren't being holy, especially in one specific area in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So let's look at it this morning. We're going to see four things the church in Corinth needed to change in if they were going to be a holy church the way that Christ would want them to be a holy church, the bride of Christ. If you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, uh, say amen. All right, you beat Pastor John there. Let's look at what it says. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll just, we'll just do the first couple of verses. Paul speaking correctively to this church in Corinth. He's in the city of Ephesus, and he says, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you, and an immorality of such a kind as does not exist among the Gentiles, that someone, look at this, has his father's wife, and you have become arrogant, and you have not mourned, instead, so that you would had done this deed, uh, the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Now, actually reported in the Greek could be translated, sounded abroad. Paul is not in Corinth at the time. He's in Ephesus. And he heard all the way back in the city of Ephesus that the church he started in Corinth was liberally, tolerantly accepting a brother who was sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmom. And interesting, He's saying, Paul is shocked by this to the point that he's saying, I can't believe this is happening in the church of Corinth, but not only that, your attitude towards it isn't right. What was their attitude towards the, to, this, to this immoral brother that was sleeping with his stepmom? They were arrogant about it. They were proud about it. Look how liberal we are. We're accepting him, and we're tolerant of this immorality. And Paul says, this kind of immorality is not even named among the pagans. The pagans don't even do this. And you are liberally accepting this. Here's the first thing that Paul is correcting that the church in Corinth so that they could be holy again. And that is there was a spirit of arrogance over sin rather than mourning over that sin. And that's a problem. One of the chief virtues in our culture today is tolerance. Just tolerate everything. Hey, what's good for you is good for you. What's right for me is right for you. What's right for you is right for you. Hey, there's no absolute truth. Everything's fine. I always want to ask people that say there's no absolute truth. Are you absolutely sure about that? There's, a, there's absolute truth. And the church's job isn't to tolerate sin. <coughs> the church's job is to address it and be truthful for the very people that are in the midst of that sin. The church's job is not to whitewash or candy coat sin. The church's job, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is to be the salt of the earth. And what is salt? Salt preserves things in that culture from getting things rotten especially within the church of Jesus Christ. If there's open immorality and open sin and blatant lifestyle sin among so-called brothers, we don't just put that under the carpet. We're supposed to confront it in love, but deal with it. Last time I was in my hometown of Oak Park, Illinois, I was walking down Lake Street, <coughs> which is one of the main streets going through Oak Park, Illinois, and there's a church row. If you notice that the churches are kind of like McDonald's and Burger King's, they all kind of, there's church rows. So I'm walking down Lake Street, I'm walking down Church Row, and I see this sign for the church. 
we are an open church that's tolerant of all lifestyles. Then I walked to the next church, Methodist Presbyterian Church, Methodist, oh, same sign, duplicating and their church sign. We are an open, tolerant church that's open to all lifestyles. And I realized as I was going down this Lake Street, what these churches were saying, there's a large gay population in Oak Park in the Chicago area where we're at, and they're basically opening the doors and saying, no big deal, come here, you'll be, to- you'll be tolerated, and we won't say anything about that lifestyle. Now, we're not supposed to, as a church, be homophobic. I get that. We are supposed to love the homosexual culture and love them <coughs> into the kingdom, but we're also supposed to tell them the truth, right? And we're going to see next week in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 that if you're in certain lifestyles, drunkenness, adultery, fornication, or homosexual, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the church needs to, to be truthful and not just be a part of the rest of the culture that just says, that's tolerated, that's liberally accepted. No, the church needs to tell that community, this is, this is not something you're born with, this is something that can be changed through Christian counseling. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus can help you in this area, and you don't have to stay in that lifestyle. Do you see the difference there? The Bible says Jesus was full of grace, yeah, but he's also full of truth, wasn't he? The Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and he was full of grace, but also full of truth. The church needs to do the same thing. Interesting. People that (coughs) are flying this banner of tolerance, have you seen when you don't believe what they believe, they're very intolerant, right? And a part of being a holy church is instead of being prideful, accepting lifestyles that are not concurrent with the scriptures, we're supposed to take a stand and say, this is right and this is wrong. And the church in Corinth wasn't doing that. <clears throat> Interesting, James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, shows us how we're supposed to deal with sin. It says this, but he gives a greater grace... Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you devil-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So are we supposed to celebrate sin as Christians? No. The Bible says we're supposed to mourn over sin. The word mourn there is used for when there's a death. And when we people see people, especially that are our so-called brothers and sisters, going into lifestyles of sin, we don't just tolerate that. We mourn and we pray. We ask for God to bring humility and change and repentance. The Bible says a godly sorrow leads to repentance. We shouldn't celebrate sin. We should mourn over it. And we should pray for those that are stuck and entangled in that stuff. And then we should tell them the truth. And that's what Paul's going to point to back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Go on. For I know in part, <coughs> though absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this, as though I were present in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you're assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such a one, this immoral brother, to Satan for the <coughs> destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. This is heavy stuff. See what Paul's saying here? Paul's saying, I'm not there presently, physically, but I'm with you in spirit, because he's their spiritual father. He started the church, led many of them to Christ. He says, and this brother that's committing incest with his stepmom, 
You're to exercise church discipline to the point that you turn him over to the world. You, you, you exercise church discipline, get him out of the fellowship, let him go, get us fill of the world so that, why? So that he can repent. Bible's very clear on this. Part of the church's job is when there's brothers or sisters in the fellowship that are living immoral lifestyles, is to go to them and confront them in love, and then if they refuse to repent, you say, enough, go have your fill of the world. Go, get out of here until you get right with God. Oh, WWJD, what would Jesus do? He wouldn't do that. Jesus is just merciful. He would never do that. Really? Read Matthew 23 sometime. You see his words to Pharisees that were religious hypocrites. I, I read it in my quiet times this week. It was like, man, he just, whoa, whoa, whoa. He just blasts them because he's speaking truth and love to them. Listen to Jesus' words, Matthew chapter 18, about a, someone who's in sin. Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. That's church discipline. And is it done out of anger? No. Is it, is it for punishment? No. It's done out of love so that there'll be restoration and reconciliation with God, with that brother or sister. One of my favorite Calvary Chapel pastors. Uh, we've had him here at a men's conference numerous times. His name's Don McClure. And Don McClure goes way back to the early days at Calvary Chapel. He's a great guy. Great teacher of the word, too. He goes, he was, a, he was the first intern for Pastor Chuck, the founder of Calvary Chapel, back in the early 70s. And I was listening to Don McClure uh, at a pastor's conference one time, and he was sharing his testimony about his sons. He's had four sons. And they were all, all you know, the apple of his eye and his heart. He loved these sons. But he said, my oldest son for a season, he went into total rebellion and backsliding. To the point that his oldest son, he shared in this one pastor's conference, his oldest son actually started, Pastor Don's house, in his house, started doing cocaine. And not only did he start doing cocaine, then he started selling cocaine. And Pastor Don was pastoring at Calvary Chapel all the time. And finally he said, enough. He had a sit-down, man-to-man talk with his oldest son. And he said, son, I love you. I've always loved you. I've loved you since you've been born. I've changed your diapers. I've done the best to provide for you. I've done the best to lead you to Jesus. But your lifestyle now needs to change. And if you won't stop doing the cocaine, if you won't stop selling the cocaine, then you need to get out of here. And his son said, well, I'm not going to stop doing it. He said then, hey, door right there. There's three other boys in this family, and we can't let you stay here. We can't, and by the way, you can't come to church anymore either until you repent of the cocaine and the selling of cocaine. And then they said this to his son, as his son was leaving, he said this. He said, and, and when you're out there in the world, if there's anything better than loving Jesus and serving Jesus, I want you to come and come back and tell me about that. The son was gone for six months. Didn't hear anything from his son. He prayed fervently for his son who was, you know, doing the cocaine, selling the cocaine, out on the street, didn't even know where his son was at. Six months later, opened the door. And his son said, Dad, you're right. 
There ain't nothing better out there than loving Jesus and serving Jesus. Dad, can I come home? And can I come to church again? You know what? He did. And not only did he get right with God because of his father's confrontation and tough love, but he also got involved in church again, started studying the word again, and now he pastors the Calvary Chapel in San Jose, California. Isn't that cool? And I, a, part of it was, a part of it was the confrontation there. A part of it was there was a dad there that wasn't going to sweep it under the carpet and pretend like everything's fine. There was a dad that confronted his son in love to the point that his son repented after a six-month hiatus, but he came back like the prodigal son because he came to his senses, and now he pastors like Calvary Chapel. I think that's cool. But that's the job of the church, too. The job of the church is not to just... You know, ooh, boys will be boys, no big deal. We'll let you keep coming to church, but there will be no accountability, no confrontation. And that's why, by the way, I love U-Turn for Christ because U-Turn for Christ is a great example for us on this campus of tough love. I'm, I'm right by the office of U-Turn for Christ. I hear it through the walls all the time. And Pastor Steve, in grace, but with truth, confronts people that need to be confronted in love. That's the job of the church, isn't it? That's the job of the church. The job of the church is to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Another version says we're supposed to be spurring one another on to love and good deeds, stimulating one another. That's powerful. That's the job of the church. As iron sharpens iron, so we're supposed to sharpen one another. And if we're going to be a holy church, the second point, very, very important, is that the church in Corinth wasn't doing this, and many of the churches today aren't exercising discipline necessary to maintain holiness. We need to be a holy church, and we need to hold each other accountable. And that's exactly what Paul is doing with his brother now in Corinth. He's saying, deliver him over to the world. Let him have his fill of the world so that his spirit might be saved as he's being destroyed out there in the world. Now, by the way, also, church discipline isn't to be punishment. It's to be done out of love for restoration of brothers and sisters in Christ. And the good news about this brother in Corinth, he got right. How do I know that? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, the next letter Paul writes, listen to what he says about this brother who is in immorality. Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 6. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. <clears throat> Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him, this brother, for this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you're obedient in all things. But the one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed what I have forgiven, <coughs> if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we're not ignorant of Satan's schemes. That's the purpose, that's the purpose of confrontation and love and holding each other accountable. So there's, there's repentance and there's a getting right in a holiness and in the lives of the people as we hold each other accountable. Again, I love our U-turn for Christ because I see that happen all the time too. I see guys that decide, well, I'm going to go back to the world. And then when they come back, the door's open here. And there's love and there's forgiveness and acceptance and restoration all the time on this campus. It's amazing. There's a phrase that we've used from the beginning days of our U-turn for Christ. There's always room at the end. You know what I mean? There wasn't room in the end for Jesus. We're going to make sure. There's always room at the end over here for, for repentant people that want to get right with God. And hey, listen, in this church, there's always room here too. Doesn't matter what you've done, 
what you've been involved with. If you're repentant and you want to, want to walk right with God, hey, open doors. We're going to love you. We're not going to have a condemning attitude. Let's listen. We all got issues, don't we? We all have things we struggle with. And if you say that you don't have an issue, that's an issue right there. Because we all have things we struggle with, and we're all redeemed sinners by the blood and the grace of God that we've been made right with God. So let's go on. So the second thing we've seen here of, the, of holiness was the church in Corinth wasn't holy because they weren't exercising discipline necessary to maintain holiness. Now, let's look at the next thing, verse, verse uh, 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, to understand this scripture, you understand the Jewish people, <clears throat> still to this day, they have a Passover feast. And the week before the Passover, what they do, it's the week of unleavened bread. And what they do is they, they have actually a tradition, the little kids and everything else would get candles, and they'll go through all the house, and they'll look for any bread that had, has yeast in it, leavened bread. And they'll get rid of all the leavened bread in the house, and the week before the Passover is the week of unleavened bread. Why? <clears throat> because leaven was yeast, and it represents throughout the scripture sin. And so before the Passover lamb is celebrated, they want to get all the sin out of the house, representing uh, leaven. And so what it's saying there, our, who's our Passover lamb? Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what we're supposed to be doing, just like the Jewish people before the week of the Passover, we're supposed to be cleaning house. We're supposed to be people that examine our lives. And if there's sin that needs to be repented of in the church or in our houses, get it out. Why? Because a little leaven, a little sin, a little immorality will leaven the whole dough, will affect the whole church. Do you know your sin doesn't just mess you up? It can mess up your family. It can mess up a church. It leavens, the leaven could spread and have a ripple effect and bring problems, not only in your individual life, but in your family and in your church. And so what does it say? Get rid of the wickedness. Get rid of the evil and practice sincerity and truth. That's the kind of Christians I love. I don't want to be around a bunch of pretending, hypocritical, religious people. I get nervous around that environment. I want to be around people that are real, genuine, sincere. You know the word sincere there? It's an interesting word. It goes back to the Roman Empire. It means without wax. And what they did in the Roman Empire is they had statues, marble statues and stuff. And if you were an artist that wasn't sincere, what would happen is you'd start chipping on a nose and getting it, you know, right and stuff. And all of a sudden you'd chip off a whole nose. You know what you'd do if you weren't sincere? You would take wax and you'd put it, you'd mix it with some marble dust and you'd put it on the nose and you'd still sell the statue. And then when that statue would get into to the courtyard or whatever, the person's house, all of a sudden the sun would start beating down on the wax, and what would happen? His nose would melt off because it was, you know, it had wax. So what does sincere mean? It means you're without wax. It means you're genuine. You're real. You're authentic in your Christianity. You're not perfect. Hey, if you're trying to be perfect as a Christian, good luck with that. Ain't going to happen. <laughs> 
But let's be real. Let's get rid of the wickedness and the malice. And let's have the bread of sincerity and truth. Let's be authentic Christians. Christians that are doing our best to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Christians that are doing their best to be people that are, man, I, I'm, I'm not gonna be in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. I'm gonna be different. I'm gonna be holy. This stuff in this world's passing away. And I wanna have sincerity and truth and Christ-likeness in our life. And as we walk with Christ, we have this desire. I'm gonna seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And that'll make for holiness in your life and that'll make for holiness in our church. I want a church like that, and I want to be a Christian like that. I'm a knucklehead. I do, I do, <laughs> Heidi just shakes her head sometimes, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm not only a knucklehead, I don't do things normally. I mean, she, she's, she's Christian schools, Christian everything, and, and, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm just different sometimes. And some of you are saying, yeah, you're really different, you're right. But, but I, I make mistakes all the time. I've been a Christian now for 40 years. I still make mistakes. But one of the things that's uh, distinctive in, in my faith and what I believe and what I try to practice is I try to be real. And one of the things I loved about Pastor Chuck, my pastor who founded Calvary Chapel, the guy was just honest. He was a real deal. And that's what I love about Calvary Chapel, too. One of the distinctives is not only grace for our movement of churches, but reality. Let's be real. And let's get rid of the wickedness and the evil in our lives as Christians. Let's practice the bread of sincerity and truth. Amen? Amen. Genuine, authentic Christians. Sincerity and truth. Now let's close up our chapter. <clears throat> so Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not <coughs> at all mean with immoral people of this world or with covetous, swindlers, idolaters, for then you'd have to go out, into the, out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with no so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindlered, not even to eat with such a one. For what I have to do with you with judging outsiders, do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside, God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Here's what Paul's saying. He said, I wrote to you a previous letter. Now, that's interesting because 1 Corinthians is really not 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Paul says right here, I wrote to you a letter previously. Now, for some reason, God in his sovereignty didn't choose to put the first Corinthians in there. He put this, which was actually second Corinthians, in there. But he said in the first letter, I told you not to associate with immoral, ungodly people. And he's clearing something up here because they took that in Corinth to say, okay, holy huddle. We're not going to associate with anybody out in the world. Wicked people, no more. We're going to straight arm anybody that's out there in the world. Is that what Paul was telling them to do in the first letter? No. Because Jesus said we're supposed to be out in the world, not in, of the world, but out of the world, being the light of the world and being the salt of the earth. How can we change a world if we have nothing to do with them? You know, the Bible says don't be conformed to this world, but we're supposed to be the light of the world. We're supposed to have redemptive, redemptive relationships with sinful people to lead them to Christ. So what Paul is clearing up here, he's saying, I didn't say <clears throat> don't associate with people in the world that are wicked. I'm saying don't associate with people in the church that are so-called brothers that are involved in idolatry, immorality, drunkenness, wickedness, evil things, idols of the world. If someone is coming to church on Sunday and living like the rest of the world the rest of the week, being immoral, 
have a, have a distance from them. And specifically, he said, this brother that's committing incest with his stepmom, remove him out of the church. <clears throat> Why? Because when there's hypocrisy in the church like that, the world says, what do I want to do with you? Why, why, why would I spend my time going to the church when your lives aren't being changed by this gospel you're preaching to me? Interesting. When I was in college, I was just a few years old in the Lord, and I remember my sophomore year at University of Illinois, which is a university with like 45,000 students, and it was a crazy place because they had the largest fraternity and sorority system in the entire nation. I think they still do. And what was interesting about it was my sophomore year in college, I was involved in leading a Bible center in our dorm. I was involved in FCA. I was involved in Baptist Student Union. I was involved with a campus church. But there's some guys that were in class with me that were naming the name of Christ, and they were so-called brothers in the Lord and stuff, and they started inviting me to their fraternity to lift weights with them in the basement of their fraternity. And I did. I started lifting with these guys. Good guys. liked them. Enjoyed just hanging out with them, you know, pumping out the bench presses, everything else. And then they started working on me. Said, John, we got the best fraternity on this campus. It's called Sig- it's Sigma Nu was the name of the fraternity. I said, John, you got you got a pledge. You got a pledge. And I said, Well, I don't know anything about fraternities, but I like your gym better than the, what I have in the dormitory. And so they invited me to one of their socials. I get to this social. It was in February at University of Illinois, um, and I mean there was there was a foot of snow on the ground, and it was a luau. I didn't know how to dress in February in Illinois to Alua, so I just wore, you know, a Hawaiian shirt and some jeans. I get there, I get to the fraternity, and no one was there. I'm going, what, are these guys pulling a stunt on me or something? And then I hear all this noise in the basement. So I get down to the basement, and these, these fraternity guys had this social, or whatever it's called, and there was three feet of water in the basement. They flooded the whole basement. This was a huge house. They flooded the whole basement, and they were having a lua. Talking about a fish out of water, as a Christian, I get down there, and there's keggers everywhere, and there's, they're all in swimsuits and stuff, and I'm going, these people are nuts. And not only did I, within two hours of that fraternity social, I realized I ain't going to have anything to do with this. Because these so-called brothers that I was lifting weights with were not only swimming in this three feet of water, they were just, talk about pickled. They were drunk as can be. And then after a couple days later, I went to go lift with them in the basement again. They said, hey, John, come on, come to the next social. I go, no, ain't going to do that, guys. And then as I started discovering was they were naming the name of Christ, but Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, there were socials and there was drunkenness and there was immorality. And you know what? I had to pull away from those brothers because they weren't living what they were talking. Do you know what I'm saying? I remember them, some of them would say, well, you could come and be a chaplain for a fraternity. You, you, could, you could pray before the meals and you could lead a Bible study in a fraternity. I said, yeah, guys, I ain't going to do that. I'm going to be a witness to you and I, God bless you. But you know what I saw the next year or so? I had a number of other Christian friends that got pulled into fraternities. Within six months, they, they went into fraternities with hearts that say, I want to lead a Bible study. I'll be a witness to these guys and everything else. They got pulled into the immorality, the drunkenness, and they were backslidden Christians because of that. You see how we got to protect ourselves from that? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts what? Good morals. Now, again, let's not do this stiff arm of the world. We need to be a witness to the world. 
people are, are lost out there, and if people are at work or whatever else, and they're getting into immorality and drunkenness and everything else, don't push them away. Lead them to Christ. Amen? But when it happens in the church, and people are so calling themselves Christians, and they're living immoral lifestyles, we need to love them enough to tell them the truth so they'll be brought to repentance. And again, Jesus said, hey, if a brother sins, go to them, listen, in private. Speak truth in their life. Humbly speak truth, but speak truth. So there could be repentance from the so-called Christianity they're living in. Do you see that, church? So what are we seeing this morning, the importance of what of of being a holy church. Well, first of all, if we're gonna be a holy church, we can't have a spirit of arrogance over sin. We have a spirit of mourning and repentance over sin. Number two, if we're gonna be a holy church, we need to exercise discipline and confront anybody that's naming the name of Christ that's living an immoral lifestyle. Number three, very important, is our sin, we need to realize, our sin, if we live in the lifestyle sin, it will affect not not only personal, our personal lives, but our families, and our church. We need to protect the reputation of Christ by not allowing immoral lifestyle to to come into our lives. Number four, we're not to judge those that are outside the church that are immoral. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to deal within the inside of the church with those that are immoral and so calling themselves brothers and sisters in Christ. Super Bowl Sunday. Boy, that was a tough message, wasn't it? (laughs) <laughs> you know what? We don't water things down around here. We go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, because we don't want to just give you hot fudge Sundays every Sunday. We want to give you the whole counsel of God. Paul said to the Ephesian elders, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And that's what we're going to do at this church. We're not going to give you little Christian, you know, sermonettes for Christianettes. We're going to give you what the Word of God says. Because the word of God is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart and it, it, it gives us the power by the spirit and the word to be a holy people. To be a holy people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, set apart for God's own possession that we might declare the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So church, let's do it. Let's be the church. Let's be holy. And let's realize our God is holy and he says be holy as I am holy. Let's not be conformed to this world. Enough of that. Enough. Let's be holy. Let's be a people that are being changed from glory to glory in his image. Let's be a group of people that when the world sees us out there, yeah, they'll call us straight arrows, but they're gonna see a genuine, authentic Christianity in our lives. Let's be a people that, as people see us, they want in on what we have because we're different. We're holy. We're set apart for his purposes. Let's be the real deal. Let's, hey, let's get rid of the wickedness and the malice in our lives and let's live in sincerity and what? Truth. Because he is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. And listen, God's commandments, they're not burdensome. They're not to burden us. They're to bless us. And the more you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, the more you're gonna be blessed. And the more you, you veer away from that, the more you go with the world and the lusts and the passions and the evil and the immorality out there, the more, the more your life is gonna be burdened because he's come to kill, steal, destroy. But Jesus, <laughs> love it. He's come to give you life 
and life more abundantly. And I don't know about you, but I want that life. I want that abundant life. I want holiness. I want to be a person that, man, is walking in that favor and blessing of God because I'm being obedient. Because you're going to reap what you sow. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word this morning, God. Your word is truth. It's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. It's able to divide our soul and spirit. It's able to go to the innermost being, the joint marrow of our souls. <clears throat> and Father, I pray for this area of holiness, God. Forgive us, Lord, when we go into the world and as so-called brothers and sisters in Christ, we choose to go different than what your word says. Forgive us, Lord, for our failings, our entanglements and sin, Lord, and help us to keep short accounts with you, Father, that if we fall into areas <coughs> of immorality or sin or stumble, Lord, help us to <coughs> confess our sins so that you can be faithful and just and you could forgive us, Lord, and you can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Father, that you're a good, good Father, and you desire that's the very best for us, Lord. And you desire righteousness and holiness in our lives, God, so that we can be in a position of you adding all things unto us, Lord. Help us to be people that realize that your commandments are not burdensome, they're for our blessing. There will be a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, and we shall know the truth, and the truth will set us free. So give us the power and the wisdom and the strength to live in that holiness as we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, Lord. And if, there, <laughs> if there's anybody here this morning that needs to get, have repentance, Lord, I pray that you'd, you'd, if there's an, individuals here this morning that have been going off into immorality, into issues that they shouldn't be wandering into as Christians, I pray that today might be a day where they say, enough. Done with that. I'm going to repent. I'm going to stop going the way of the world. And I'm going to seek first, God, your kingdom and your righteousness. I'm going, to, I'm going to stop being a backslidden Christian. And I'm going to be a Christian that, again, is just obedient in a heart that's yielded to you, God. We see through the parable of the prodigal son, God, that you have open arms to anybody that has that heart of saying, I'm done. I've come to my senses. I'm coming home. If you're here this morning and you need to do that, just bring your heart to the throne of grace this morning and say, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me for my waywardness. I'm coming home. I'm going to live wholeheartedly for you again. Hmm. Father, we thank you that you're a God of forgiveness and grace and mercy. You're a God not of condemnation but of grace. Thank you, God, for the way that you, through your grace, can cover our sin. And we thank you for the blood of Jesus that if we've believed in him, he's washed it all away. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.